You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Diana Gabaldon. This program originally aired in 2015. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage with Diana Gabaldon, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Gabaldon is author of the phenomenally popular Outlander series, an addictive blend of history, fantasy, mystery, and science fiction. There are more than 25 million copies of Outlander novels, novellas, and companion books in print. The plot propels Claire, a World War II-era combat nurse, back in time to early 18th century Scotland before the Jacobite Rebellion and into the path of a heartthrob of a Highlander named Jamie. In 2014, the cable network Stars launched a series based on the show that BuzzFeed called the feminist answer to Game of Thrones. Hasty back, or else. Or else what? Or else. I will follow you. I'll drag you back by your thick red curls. You won't like it one bit. No, I'm sure I wouldn't. That's Katrina Balfe as Claire and Sam Hewen as Jamie from the series that became nothing short of a blockbuster. Outlander wrapped its first season with a very dark and much-tweeted-about finale just days before Diana Gabaldon stepped onto stage at the Music Hall. And like the Highlander she writes about, her spirited sense of humor was on display. People always say to me, well, how did you get from being a scientist to being a novelist? And I said, well, easy, I wrote a book. <laughs> Luckily, they don't make you get a license, though, you know, given some books I've read, I think maybe they really should. But, uh, but in my case, I just knew from the age of about eight that I was meant to be a novelist. But I came from a very conservative family background, and uh, my dad would often say to me, you're such a poor judge of character, you're bound to marry some bum, he said. Um, <laughs> so be sure you get a good education so you can support your children. <laughs> so um, with this going on at home, I thought perhaps I would not announce that I wanted to write books for a living. <laughs> and uh, so instead I went into science. You know, I liked science, I was good at it, I enjoyed teaching. I actually have three degrees in the biological sciences. Now, my uh, PhD dissertation was entitled Nest Site Selection in the Pinion Jay, Gymnorhinus cyanocephalus. Or as my husband says, why birds build nests where they do and who cares anyway? <laughs> so anyway, I, uh, I became a scientist, but I still wanted to write books. And uh, when I turned 35, I said to myself, well, you know, Mozart was dead at 36. Maybe you better get a move on here. And so I said, all right, my next birthday, I will begin writing a novel, you know, just to see how it's done. I'm not going to show it to anyone. It's not for publication. I'm not going to tell anyone what I'm doing. I just need to learn what does it take to write a novel. I was hired at Arizona State University as a research professor. This was the early 1980s, it was 1981. What were then called microcomputers were just beginning to seep into academia, not to say offices. And they still thought you unscrewed the top and poured the data in and you got reports out of the bottom. <laughs> you just had to know how to unscrew the top. So that was my job. So for the next 18 months, I uh, analyzed, wrote Fortran programs to analyze the contents of bird gizzards. Now, I uh, did not marry a bum, luckily. I married a very nice man, whom I still have 43 years later. But, oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, he has a lot of patience. But uh, 
He's also six foot four with red hair. <laughs> yes, this is why none of my children read my books. <laughs> yes, well, anyway, as I say, I did not marry a bum. Uh, I married a very nice man, but he did quit work three months after our first child was born in order to start his own business. And I do have to say that in terms of financial stability, there's not that much to choose between an entrepreneur and a bum. So, uh, <laughs> so for the first few years while his business was getting started, I was our sole support, and we kept having children. So I was obliged to find ways and means of making a little extra money without, you know, leaving home. This limited my prospects to prostitution in the garage. <laughs> or writing. <laughs> problem then was, what am I going to write? Because up to this point, I had written all kinds of things. I um, had written comic books for Walt Disney. I had written you know, all these scholarly articles that you write. I wrote popular science articles. My best-selling popular science article was a two-pager on how to um, remove the flesh from a cow skull in order to make an ornament for your wall. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, what I mostly did was uh, to write uh, freelance for the computer press. Now, this started because I was wondering, you know, how to make money and so forth. And I was thinking, well, what do I know how to do? Well, as a result of this uh, Fortran programming and the bird gizzards and so forth, I had developed this odd expertise in scientific computation. And, in fact, I was an expert in it. It's really easy to be an expert if there's six people in the world who do what you do, which <laughs> was my position at the time. But uh, having this odd expertise, I had actually started my own uh, scholarly journal at the university where I worked called Science Software Quarterly. It was for scientists who use computers in their work rather than computer scientists, which are a different thing. And so when the need to earn extra money arose, I sent out query letters to Byte and InfoWorld and all the computer press that I could think of, and I enclosed with it a copy of my Science Software Quarterly with self as editor, and also a copy of a comic book that I had done for Walt Disney entitled Nutrition Adventures with Orange Bird. <laughs> well, this got immediate results, and within a year I was making as much freelancing for the computer press as I was at the university, which again just goes to show how badly they pay assistant professors. <laughs> Still, this is where I was when I made up my mind to write a novel. And so I said, well, no one has ever shown me how to write comic books or, or uh, PhD dissertations or any of this other stuff I write. Um, I just looked at a few examples, wrote one, and if it didn't look quite right, I poked it till it did. I said, fine, I've been reading novels for 30-odd years. Surely if I write one, I will recognize it. I said, okay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I was reasonably sure that I knew one end of a sentence from the other by this time, but a novel is a big thing, and it's fiction. And I said, I need to know what it takes to write a whole thing like that. I need to know what it takes in terms of mental discipline and daily commitment, as well as, you know, technique and craft and all this kind of stuff. The only way to do that is to do it. So fine. What am I going to write? Because I read everything and lots of it. My mother taught me to read at the age of three, and so by 36 I had read a lot of stuff. Um, I said, well, I read maybe more mysteries than anything else. Perhaps I should write a mystery. I said, no, mysteries have plots. I'm not sure I can do that. <laughs> and so I said, what's the easiest possible book I could write for practice? After a bit of thought, I decided that might be historical fiction. I said, it seems easier to look things up than to make them up. And if I turn out to have no imagination, I can steal things from the historical record. 
And uh, so I was thinking, well, okay, uh, fine, historical novel, great. Where shall I set it? So I was casting around for a good time and place and thinking, you know, Venice, 13th century, um, American Revolution, American Civil War, you know, what seems interesting. Well, in this malleable frame of mind, I happened to see a really old Doctor Who rerun on public television. Yeah. <laughs> yes, for the people who are not giggling. Uh, Doctor, uh, Doctor Who is a really old, really long-running show that's produced in the UK. It was originally done as a children's show and is now much more adult. But the premise of the show is that the Doctor of the title is a Time Lord from the planet Gallifrey who travels through space and time having adventures, and along the way he picks up companions from different periods of Earth's history. And, you know, he keeps these companions for a season or two or until those actors' contracts run out and then he gets new ones. <laughs> In this very old show, which has to have been done, you know, 50 years ago at least, uh, the doctor had picked up a young Scotsman from 1745. And this was a young man, 1819, who appeared in his kilt. And I said, well, that's kind of fetching. <laughs> <laughs> and I found myself still thinking about this the next day. <laughs> uh, in church, and I said, um, <laughs> so I said, fine, Scotland, 18th century, and so that's where I began, knowing nothing about Scotland or the 18th century, having no plot, no outline, and no characters, nothing but the rather vague images conjured up by the notion of a man in a kilt, <laughs> which is obviously a very powerful and compelling image. <laughs> You know, uh, <laughs> Patricia had mentioned uh, the Corina Prize for Fiction, which I won in 2006. This was very cool. I got to go to Germany to accept it on Bavarian television, which is an adventure in itself. But uh, while I was there, the German publisher took advantage of my presence to have me interviewed by everyone in the German press, from their version of Vanity Fair all the way down to the tabloid newspapers. Uh, so at the end of this, I was all kind of swaying back and forth and cross-eyed. But I was talking to a nice gentleman from one of their literary magazines magazines. And he said, oh, I've read all of your books, you know, your imagery is just magical and your characters are so 3D and your, your narrative drive is tremendous. And I'm thinking, yes, yes, go on. And um, <laughs> instead he uh, paused and he said, there's just this one thing, I wonder, could you explain to me what is the appeal of a man in a kilt? <laughs> well, I was uh, extremely tired or I might not have said it, but I just looked at him for a minute. <laughs> And I said, well, I suppose it's the idea that you could be up against a wall with him in a minute. <laughs> You're listening to Diana Gabaldone. She's author of the Outlander novels and now TV series recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage on this special edition of Word of Mouth from NHPR. Anyway, there's a reason why I write long books. It's because I like digressions. But <laughs> returning for the moment to the gist of our story, I began writing a novel. You know, that's, that's where I began with my man in a kilt. Well, um, sometime before I began writing a novel, I had stumbled into a group of people called the CompuServe Literary Forum. And this happened because Byte Magazine, this is another digression, I warn you, Byte Magazine had uh, sent me a, pa a software package to review, and with it, a trial membership to this thing called CompuServe. This was the mid-1980s. The internet didn't exist as we now know it. What we had were three information services, Genie, Delphi, and CompuServe. So I began poking around, and I stumbled into this group of people called the Literary Forum. These were people who liked books. Uh, there were some professional writers there, a number of aspiring writers. It wasn't really a writer's group. It was just people who liked books and writing. And for someone with two full-time jobs and three small children, it was the ideal social life. 
So I began hanging around there and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, just joining the conversation, listening to people. And uh, so I'd been there for about a year when I decided to write a book. I was keeping quiet about it, and I was not going to tell any of the people I knew on CompuServe either what I was doing. Uh, but I was logging on every night, you know, while I was working. So I was uh, stopping every half hour, and I would log on to CompuServe and pick up messages. Well, as I was doing this one night, I was, found I was having a back-and-forth argument with a gentleman online about what it feels like to be pregnant. <laughs> and he said, oh, I know what that's like. My wife's had three children. And I laughed. <laughs> I said, yeah, Buster, I've had three children. <laughs> and he said, well, can you tell me what it's like? So I said, I tell you what, I have this thing that I wrote a couple of months ago. It's a small piece in which a young woman tells her brother in some detail what it's like to be pregnant. So I'll put it in the library here, and you can read it. So I did. And everyone who had been following the argument went and read this piece. And they all came rushing back, and they said, this is great. What is it? And I said, I don't know. And, um, <laughs> and they said, well, where's the beginning of the story? And I said, I haven't written that yet. <laughs> and uh, they said, well, you know, put up some more of it. And so this is like heroin to a first-time author, you know, that, yeah, <laughs> that somebody actually wants to read what you've written. And so, you know, every two or three months, I would put up a scene that would stand without a lot of explanation. And people got more and more excited. And they kept saying, this is great. You know, you should try and publish this. I said, well, I don't even know what kind of book it is. And I think you really ought to know that. But, you know, uh, eventually I'm going to write a book I'd like to publish. You know, what should I do? Well, um, all these published writers knew me. They knew I was a serious person. They, many of them liked me. And so they were very kind about sharing their information and telling me their own stories and so forth. All of them said, you should get an agent. I said, a literary agent can do two things for you. He or she can get you read much more quickly than if you're sending your book to a slush pile. And if it does sell, uh, the agent can negotiate a much better contract for you than you can do by yourself. Uh, this is true. My first literary contract ran 12 pages of, con of clauses and subclauses, and it's only owing to the perspicacity of my first agent that I still own my T-shirt rights and my action figure rights. <laughs> my husband says he can't wait to see the Black Jack Randall action figure. <laughs> Yeah, speaking of which, how many of you saw the finale to... Uh... <laughs> yeah, okay, was that great? Yeah, no, I watched it with, with my husband, and, you know, afterward... I mean, he's been living with the source material for 25 years, so he's hard to impress. But at the end of it, he just said, those two boys, what they did! <laughs> I was like, yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> no, I uh, rather famously, th three days after meeting Sam Hewen in the flesh, we were on a stage together. I had known him quite well for about six months electronically, but we hadn't known each other in person that long. But uh, we were doing a panel in Los Angeles in front of 2,500 fans, and one person had asked the panel, uh, what are you most looking forward to seeing filmed? Well, having had time to think about it, I leaned forward and I said to Sam, I said, well, I hope you will take this in the spirit intended, Shooks, but I really want to see you raped and tortured. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there was a, <laughs> a certain amount of fallout <laughs> about that. <laughs> People going, who would say such a thing? <laughs> 
And I said, you have been reading my books, haven't you? <laughs> but um, yeah, but evidently, it's not closely enough. No, uh, what I meant, as what most people actually assumed that I had meant, which was that I had, at this point, seen everything that Sam had done that was on film. And I knew him for uh, an extremely flexible and, uh, and you know, deep actor. I knew what he could do. He'd been in very small parts for the most part, so he didn't get to show that part of himself very often, but I'd seen it, and I knew what he could do. Now, that particular material is the most intense, demanding stuff that an actor could do. And, you know, do I want to see someone do something, you know, that demanding as well as it could or should be done? Yeah, you better want to see that. Yeah, and uh, they did it. <laughs> that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so that was rather a long digression, but anyway, back to the story. <laughs> well, anyway, as I said, they advised me to get a literary agent, and I said, great, you know, how would I find an agent? And they said, well, different ways. They said, you can go to writers' conferences and talk to agents personally. You can um, look at Writers Digest magazine. They list agents. There are books that list agents and what they're looking for and what they want. Um, you can join one of the writers' groups, like Romance Writers of America, Rocky Mountain Science Fiction Writers. Uh, they said, or you could just talk to people who have agents. I said, that seems the easiest thing to do, uh, especially since I'm nowhere near finished with the book. And so I just started talking to people you know, in the forum about agents. Whenever I found myself talking to a published writer, I'd say, can you tell me about your agent? You know, do you, where did you find him or her? Um, have you had them for a long time? Have you, you always had them? If you started with that agent and now you have another one, why did you change? How did it work? How much do you pay them? Do you think it's worth it? And that kind of stuff. And they were very kind about sharing their information. Well, gradually I began to zero in on this one gentleman named Perry Knowlton, who I thought might be a good match for me. He was a very well-known agent, represented a lot of best-selling authors, including several that I I knew from the forum, and uh, I had heard from them that he wasn't afraid of uh, very long books or of unorthodox books, both of which it had struck me I had. So I thought he might be a good match, but I didn't know how to approach him because he didn't take unsolicited queries. And so I thought, well, you know, keep writing. Either you'll figure out how to approach him or you'll find someone easier. So I did, and one day I was talking to a friend named John Stith who writes science fiction mysteries. And I said, well, I'm asking everyone about agents, John. Do you have one? And he said, well, yeah. He said, by coincidence, it's the same as so-and-so's. His name is Perry Knowlton. He said, I know you're almost ready to look for an agent. Would you like me to recommend you to Perry? I said, well, yes, John, that would be very nice. <laughs> so <laughs> I was afraid John would leave CompuServe or be run over by a bus before I finished the book. And so I said, yes, go ahead, ask him. And so he wrote Perry uh, just a regular typed note. Uh, Perry, God rest his soul, was a much older gentleman who never touched a computer in his life, hard as that may be to believe. But anyway, uh, John recommended me. I followed that with my own typed query letter, and I said, dear Mr. Knowlton, I've been writing and selling nonfiction by myself for several years, but now that I'm writing a novel, I understand I need good literary representation. You've been recommended to me by John and Judy and Carolyn Cherry and all these people whose opinions I respect. I said, I have this very long historical novel. I don't want to waste your time. Would you be willing to read excerpts from it? I didn't tell him I wasn't through writing it. Excerpts were all I had. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, he uh, very kindly called back and said, yes, he would read my excerpts. So I hastily typed a 26-page single-space synopsis and sent it with my bundle of excerpts, and he took me on on the basis of an unfinished first novel, which is not, <laughs> not common. <laughs> Thank you. Well, six months later, I finished writing the book, and I sent it to him. I called to tell him it was coming, and I said, you know, uh, I realized as I was finishing this book that there's more to the story, but I thought I should stop while I could still lift it. Um, 
but you know, if anyone is interested, you can tell them I think there's more. <laughs> and I also told him that I would be coming to New York myself the next week for a scientific con convention. And as I'd hoped he would, he said, oh, come up to the office and we can meet, because we'd never seen each other face to face. We'd done all our business by phone. So the next week, I went up to his office in New York in some trepidation of mind, because at this point, he was the only person in the world who had read the whole book, and I didn't yet know what he thought about it. So uh, as I say, he's a charming older gentleman, took me back to my, his office, got me a Diet Coke, and was attempting to put me at my ease by talking about his other clients. His conversation was not as reassuring as he probably thought, because it was at this point that I learned, in addition to my CompuServe friends, he also represented Frederick Forsyth, Tony Hillerman, and uh, Robertson Davies. <laughs> I was sitting there thinking, if you have the nerve to call Robertson Davies, Robbie, you're a better man than I am. <laughs> but what was most unnerving was that he had my manuscript on the desk in front of him in the giant orange box in which I had shipped it. And I was afraid that at some point he was going to say, well, now that I've read the whole thing, you know, it's just too weird. There's nothing I can do with it. But keep me in mind if you write anything else. So I was expecting at any moment to hear this. Instead, he uh, said, you know, the thing about Freddie Forsyth and Robbie Davies and those guys is that they're all great storytellers. He laid a hand on the box and smiled at me and said, and you're another one. Thank you. Well, at this point, I felt so gratified, I didn't care what he did with the book, but, but I did gather enough wits together to ask. And he said, well, I'm sending it out today to five editors who I think might like it. Well, four days later, I got a call on my answering machine. As I said, I'm very old. And uh, it said, uh, this is Perry. I've just called to update you about your manuscript. And so I thought, well, of the five, at least one of them has said, here, I'm not reading a 10-pound book. Take it back. And uh, I called up expecting to hear that. And he said, well, of the five I tended, sent it to, so far three of them have called back with offers to buy it. So he negotiated amongst them for two weeks. He merged with a three-book contract. And bing, I was a novelist. <laughs> Diana Gabaldone there, author of the Outlander series on stage at the Music Hall in Portsmouth. Coming up, I will ask her about the rules of time travel, creating characters who challenge traditional gender roles, and why she rejects the romance genre for her fiction. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of Writers on a New England Stage with Diana Gabaldone on this special edition of Word of Mouth from NHPR. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Diana Gabaldone, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a co-production of NHPR and the Music Hall. The eighth and latest novel in Diana Gabaldone's Outlander series, Written in My Own Heart's Blood, debuted at number one on the New York Times bestsellers list for hardcover fiction. Several of her earlier books are again bestsellers thanks to a fantastically successful cable television series that wrapped up its first season with a disturbing but critically acclaimed finale just days before we spoke. You think I cannot control the darkness I inhabit? <laughs> One way or another, I will get a response from you. A sold-out crowd of Outlander fans had traveled from all over New England, upstate New York, and further afield to see the author at the Music Hall, many wearing plaid or waving paper cutouts of Jamie, as played by the Scottish actor Sam Hewen, and many of whom submitted questions for the author. Here's our conversation, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. 
Well, we have so many terrific questions from the audience. I'd love to get to as many as possible. Now, we just heard that your husband is six foot four, red-haired. Yeah. yeah. Does he have a knife-thin nose by any chance? Yes, he does, as okay. a matter of fact. <laughs> no, when he sees Sam Hewitt in, in profile, he says, every time I see that guy, I want to grab his nose and pull it out another inch. <laughs> well... This woman says, my husband is ever so slightly jealous of Jamie Fraser. Is yours jealous, or is he Jamie himself? <laughs> I didn't tell him what I was doing when I was writing the book. He discovered this by accident at one point. Um, but uh, he didn't read it until I got back what are called galleys. Uh, that's like a bound galley is like a very cheap paperback that they send out to reviewers. So anyway, he sat down to read it at this point. He was about halfway through, and he said, this is a great story. He said, I love it. He said, I can't help noticing that this uh, hero of yours is very tall with red hair. <laughs> and I said, well, it's true. You're Jamie Fraser's body model from the neck down. <laughs> Yes, though, in fact, uh, he, uh, he says that I steal all of his best jokes for Jamie, which is true to a point. And uh, he did in the last line of Fiery Cross, you know, if when the day comes, uh, my last words aren't I love you, you know, because I didn't have time. Uh, that's something he actually said to me. Oh, my goodness. I'm really interested in your sort of theory of time travel. This is mm -hmm. something that mm -hmm. you articulated in uh, The Outlandish Companion, yeah, uh, the first one. Mm -hmm. And then I also noticed that there was an article printed in the Journal of Transfigural Mathematics yes. with the rules. <laughs> so you, this is a very sort of scientific approach. Can you tell us about yeah. the finer points of that, how actions in the past influence the future? Ah, well, according to the Gabaldon theory... Um, <laughs> this is, consists of two parts. One is the mechanical, you know, how does the time travel actually work, which we are working out along with the characters, because, you know, it's not like there's a handbook to this. They're having to do it by trial and error, and they're observing, and they're thinking, well, maybe it's this way, and they're saying, no, it's not that way, maybe it's this way. And so they're figuring it out as they go along. Uh, but in terms of, you know, the actual theory behind it, there's, there's that. And then there is what you said, you know, how does a time traveler influence things? What do they do? Well, one of the underlying points that we're trying to make throughout the books is that every single person, no matter where they are, whether they're a time traveler or not, has the power to affect the future. Mm -hmm. I and mean, we all do it. If you're a woman, you do it every time you have a baby. Claire should remember this more often than she does. Every time she saves a life, she has changed the future. Mm. Um, for Jamie, every time he kills somebody, he's changed the future. But, uh, you know, everybody has that sort of power regardless. However, the point here is uh, the fact that we have time travelers who know what will happen at certain points. Can they change that? What I say is that a time traveler has no more and no less power than a person of the time to which they have traveled, in, unless they have you know, exchanged bodies and they're presently the prime minister of India or something, then they could probably change things. But you know, if you're just an average citizen, what are you going to do? I mean, consider it. What if you knew today that there was going to be some terrible disaster somewhere? What would you do to stop it? I mean, really, you may know it's going to happen. What are you going to do? Who are you going to tell? You're going to call the FBI and see what they you'll end up locked up for the next 30 years. But, but, uh, but you're probably not going to be able to affect something large. The reason for this is that very large events, whether disasters or treaties or battles or accessions or whatever, are the result of a lot of people pushing in one direction. Okay, if you're a time traveler, you're essentially on your own. 
you don't have a lot of people to push in any given direction, and you don't have a place to push. What this means is that you probably have the power to affect things on a very small scale. Say you're a time traveler and you arrive in Paris you know, during the terror. Okay, you know that there's going to be a bloody purge in the Place de la Concorde next week. If you tell your neighbor, the baker, oh, let's not go down and watch them guillotine people, Pierre, let's stay home and play cards, you can probably save the baker's life. You couldn't save Marie Antoinette. <laughs> so in, the, in this book, written in my own heart's blood, what we're learning here is about a history of the American Revolution, for mm-hmm. example. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you chose the Battle of Monmouth, which is something that Claire knew from Bree's coloring books when yes. she was a kid. She learned about this battle. Why did you choose that battle in particular? Uh, well, it was a matter of timing and place. Uh, we had left them at the end of Echo in the Bone in mid-1778 in Philadelphia. Uh, So I said, what happened in the vicinity of Philadelphia in 1778 that had to do with the revolution? And I have an almanac of the American Revolution that tells you pretty much what happened on any given day through those four or five years. And so I looked, and here's the Battle of Monmouth. And I said, okay, that's what we're going to (laughs) use. So that's how it went. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to read to you um, three different references to Outlander in popular culture and just see which one rings best for you. One is from Orange is the New Black. It was the second season. And Pussy and Tasty, they're in the prison library. They work in the library. And Tasty picks up a copy of Outlander. And I just want to get this quote right. And she says, You ever read this? Lady travels back in time to Scotland, hooks up with this big, sexy outlaw type, and they be getting it day in and day out. Yo, it's hot. <laughs> All right, here's another one. The smartest set of science fiction adventure romances ever written by a science PhD with a background in scripting Scrooge McDuck comic books. (laughs) Or Game of Thrones for librarians. Ah. (laughs) Those are all pretty good. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I like the second one best. You do? I wondered if you'd reject the romance part, because I know you were initially marketed as a romance book, and and Mm -hmm. you fought to get out of that section. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, the books are not romances. Uh, Outlander is the only one that has an underlying structure that, you know, could, uh, it, it is essentially a romance backbone. Romance is a courtship story, period, the end. This is why romances don't have sequels. Okay, I have sequels. Besides that, you know, there is a lot of stuff in that book that you would just not find in a romance novel, like all that boring history, as they put it. There's a a piece that I have just written for the Outlandish Companion, too, called Romance in the Written Word, which is a personal history of my involvement with the romance genre, which was, uh, you know, I I like well-written romances, but it's, it's not what I write. And uh, as I said to my agent when he suggested this, I said, I got two objections. You know, one, I will never be reviewed by the New York Times or any other, you know, literarily respectable review, if you call it a romance, so I can live with that. I said, more importantly, you will cut off the entire male half of my audience. And I said, these are not women's fiction. There are things in them that men see that women don't, and vice versa. And I said, I don't want those to be lost. And being a man, he said, yes, I understand what you mean. He said, we could insist that they call them science fiction or fantasy uh, because of the odd elements. But uh, bear in mind, a bestseller in SFF is 50,000 in paperback. Bestseller in romance is 500,000. I said, you got a point. (laughs) 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 
also our agreement with, uh, with the publisher was that we would allow them to publish the paperbacks originally as, uh, as romance. The hardcovers have always been called fiction. But that if the books became visible, which is publisheries for hit the New York Times list, they would reposition them as fiction, which they very honorably did. Voyager hit the list. They immediately began stamping fiction on the spine, covered up the roses, and, you know, there we are. But... Um, <laughs> Barnes and Noble, however, did not. They kept shoving me in the romance section, no matter what I said, district managers, store managers, they all said, well, we can't move the books. It all comes down from New York. They tell us what we can sell and where we have to shelve it, and they put you in romance. Their opinion is, since you sold the first book as romance, that's all you'll ever write for the rest of your life. I continued to seethe about this for some time until I wrote uh, Lord John and the Private Matter. Now, many of you are familiar with Lord John. (laughs) Yes, well, uh, Barnes and Noble wasn't, and they shoved that book in the romance section. (laughs) And so I resumed saying to store managers, he's gay, you know, there is no heroin, there's no heterosex, you know, (laughs) what what are you thinking? And again, they said, well, this is what New York thinks this book is, so that's what we have to call it. So I, I got fed up with this in the course of a long book tour, and toward the end, I just called up my editor and said, look, I've had it. I'm not going into another Barnes and Noble as long as they're putting that book in the romance section. So, you know, cancel all the drop-in signings you have for the next two days. I'm not going. So she did. And at this point, I said, what do I have to lose? So I went home, and I wrote this very rude letter to Steve Riggio, who was the CEO at the time. I said, dear Mr. Riggio, I'm assuming that you recognize my name, since it shows up at the top of the New York Times bestseller list with depressing regularity. (laughs) I said, I'm assuming that you're familiar with my books, since they occupy a large quantity of real estate in your stores. I said, I'm assuming also that you've heard of a bookstore chain called Hastings. I said, I'm assuming you don't know that Hastings sells 40% more of all my titles than you do. I do assume you'd like to know why this is. It's because they're not putting them in the effing romance section, Steve. (laughs) I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is a special edition of Word of Mouth. Today, Diana Gabaldon, author of the Outlander novels and now TV series, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for writers on a New England stage. But still, there is a great love at the center of this story. Yes, of course. Well, all um, great novels are love stories. But rarely do you see sustained passion over many, many years, right? You don't. Are there a lot of great novels about people having terrific sex in their 40s and 50s? Not so much. No. Well, this was one reason why I wrote or what I write, what I do, is because I don't like to do the same thing. And having written Outlander, I said, well, this is you know, a great love story, et cetera. It is a courtship story. It could be sold as a romance in spite of all of the other stuff. I said, but, you know, that's it. You know, most people assume, well, as soon as they're married or go to bed together, the story is over. And I said, it's not that way. I said, I've never seen anyone try to describe what it is that makes people stay married for 50 years. That seems like a worthy literary challenge. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. Well, after your 43-year marriage, if your husband time-traveled to another time and had an affair, would you consider that cheating? Uh, It would depend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, would he think he could get back if he could? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have subverted a lot of norms. The relationship between Claire is sexually aware. She's the teacher in this case. Mm -hmm. And also... We see over and over again, she gets imperiled, he saves her. And in this last finale, it's just an incredibly different story. We see a man, a male lead, completely broken, raped, and tortured. 
I wondered about the treatment of that. You know, were you afraid that they would do your story right in this series? Uh, well, that's always a concern, and in fact, I've been very lucky, very blessed to have the people in charge of this series that are. You know, uh, what Ron said to the first fan event we addressed together, he said, my job is to make sure I don't screw up my wife's favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, he is a man of his word. He does, I mean, changes have to be made. They've got 16 hours. I had 300,000 words. You know, you're not going to cram it all in there. Also, they have to do it episodically, and each episode has to have its own little story arc. Whereas in a book, I can have you know, climaxes wherever I want them. I can pace it any way I want. They can't. They have constraints. And so I think that uh, given the different mediums, they do an extremely good job at, at being faithful to that. Though when it came to the material toward the end, you know, uh, they'd been very good about you know, keeping the essence of the book, even when they had to deviate slightly in details. It was still recognizably Outlander. And, uh, you know, I, I was reasonably sure Ron wouldn't chicken out on me. But uh, we got to this, and finally... And we started, uh, you know, talking about the script and so forth. I didn't like the first script. I don't have any legal authority to make them do things or not do things. But they do ask for my, uh, my consultation. And, you know, nine times out of ten, they'll do something to address it if I have a concern. Well, anyway, this was obviously tricky material, so we were talking back and forth. And um, anyway, Ron was saying at, at some point, he was saying, you know, I see what you, know, what you want to do here. I just can't see how to get into it. You know, how do we start this, this process? I, I can't see how to stage it how to film it, and we were uh, actually touring together, doing PR and all that with some of the cast, so we were all about to fly to New York. Anyway, the rest of the cast either slept or stayed up watching TV, and I, I just got out my laptop, and I wrote Ron this fairly horrifying little page and a half of exactly how you could do that. Mm. And uh, you know, my goal was not so much to that I thought he would you know, actually do that, though he might get some suggestions from it. In fact, they did use a few elements yeah. from that. But my goal was more to indicate that just how far I thought they should go mm -hmm. in case they felt like chickening out, and they didn't, luckily. Oh, it's amazingly filmed. I mean, it looks like a Caravaggio painting a lot. It was beautiful, you know, absolutely very beautifully beautiful. done. Mm -hmm. But there have been some comments, not only from reviewers, but from viewers that call it just this most powerful, daring hour of television. And it, I couldn't help but noticing how quickly it fell on the heels of an episode of Game of Thrones, where there was another rape of a woman. Mm -hmm. Some reviewers were saying, we're not going to do recaps anymore. We've mm -hmm. just had it. Mm -hmm. Yet, this was praised. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that difference? Well, it's because of the structure of the story. Uh, Ron is very faithful to the source material, and so the series uh, on television um, actually rose to the same point that the books reach. That particular sexual encounter is one of the either high points or low points, but it's one of the most intense points of the story, and it is integral to the story. It's the conclusion of a very long developing character arc, you know, where Claire you know comes in up against you know absolutely dire necessity and has to use everything she has in order to try to save him and she doesn't save him you know you usually this is what happens in a book you get up to that sort of thing and uh, as Ron said you know Angus comes swinging in on a rope and everything's saved and they ride off into the sunset well I actually wrote a little essay called Jamie and the rule of three which explains exactly why he doesn't get saved 
I don't know what it is in people's genetic makeup, but we are programmed to appreciate things in threes. This is why jokes always have the punchline on the third iteration, and this is why fairy stories have three brothers or three princesses, you know, and, and you go through the first two, and then it's the third one who is the hero and so forth. Third time is, in fact, the charm in terms of, of fiction, literary storytelling kind of thing. And so uh, we have that beat, one, two, three. Captain Randall menacing Jamie's family and he's, you know, flogged him terribly, you know, injured him deeply, caused the death of his father and so forth. We know this man is a terrible person. Okay, then later he captures Claire, you know, and comes perilously close to raping her. Um, doesn't succeed, partly because she has the presence of mind not to scream and act afraid, realizing that that's what he gets off on. And also because Jamie arrives in time and saves her, that's B2. Okay, so if we got up to the third one, this final encounter between these two, Jamie and, and uh, Blackjack, bang that's the third one two three and that also if we have this moment that is uh, you know just complete destruction what do you get after destruction well if you're writing my book you get redemption how do you come back from something like that and so in the books that is the third climax the first is when Jamie takes Claire to the stones and gives her a choice she chooses to stay with him the second is uh, when she rescues him from Wentworth Abbey which we've seen again now in the book the third climax is when she saves his soul <laughs> that's my conversation with Diana Gabaldone author of written in my own heart's blood and seven novels several novellas and companion books in the Outlander series After a short break, we'll talk about finding the viciousness in characters. She'll also solve some mysteries from the series and give us some clues on where it's headed next. I'm Virginia Prescott. We'll be back with more of Diana Gabaldone, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage on this special edition of Word of Mouth. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Writers on a New England Stage with Diana Gabaldone, recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth, a special edition of Word of Mouth. Before the break, Diana Gabaldone talked about three crucial climaxes in her Outlander novels, the first of which has been adapted into a critically acclaimed series on cable TV that had just wrapped days before she joined us at the Music Hall. The series finale had been praised for its deft handling of a difficult subject, the rape and torture of the male lead character, Jamie, at the hands of a monstrous British officer known as Black Jack Randall, a character so heinous that several audience members asked what inspired him. Um, I don't actually plan characters. You know, I I pretty much find them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a, a group of fans near where I live who occasionally take me out to tea in order to pick my brains. And on one of these occasions, they got started on Black Jack Randall. And they're going, oh, he's so loathsome. He makes my skin crawl. He's a scum. And I'm sitting there sipping my tea and thinking, you have no idea you're talking to Black Jack Randall, do you? <laughs> As people always say, oh, are you Claire? To which the answer is 15.3%, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, they're all me. Where else would they come from? <laughs> Well, you know, I've been reading about your writing process, and, you know, on a day you wake up, you take the dogs for a walk, you do some writing, go on errands, your husband goes to bed early, you tuck him in at 9.30, you're sitting there sipping your Diet Coke, and you're dreaming up these sadistic scenes. (laughs) You access some very sensual, deep parts of yourself, obviously, and obviously some dark parts of yourself. And I just wonder, does that take any kind of transition for you? No. No. (laughs) Just all there. Really? 
No, I, uh, well, for one thing, I, I don't dream them up ahead of time. I sort of, those develop organically as I write. Um, you know, I was, I was telling uh, my husband about the Wentworth stuff. I hadn't got anywhere near, near writing it, and I was just saying, you know, this happens, this happens. And I said, uh, you know, Jamie gets raped and so forth. And I said, but, you know, don't worry about it. We're not going to see it actually happening on screen. You know, we're just going to see little bits of it here and there. So, you know, the audience doesn't have to know everything. And being a perceptive man, he looked at me and said, yeah, but you have to know everything that happened in that room, don't you? I mm -hmm. said, you're right, I do. Yeah. <laughs> a number of this question... Diana, who was the man standing outside Claire's room when she was still with Frank and Outlander? <laughs> you know, there were a number of these, like, was it Jamie? Of course it's Jamie. This one says, please tell us it wasn't Jamie. <laughs> Don't separate him from Claire. Any clues there? Well, of course it's Jamie. But um, what he's doing there uh, will be explained, but it'll be the last thing in the last book, and we're not there yet. <laughs> oh, wait. So you have that final scene in mind? Uh, yes. Um, I, I wrote it about 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. It kind of bubbled up out of nowhere in the middle of the night, so I got up and, and wrote it down. Um, but it's, uh, it's not plot. It's sort of epilogue. Mm -hmm. And so I have no idea how we get to the end of the final book. So, uh, so it's not so, that I know the end of the story. I just know the final scene. What if everybody here promised they wouldn't tell anybody? <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, the only two people in the world who have seen that scene are Ron Moore and Sam Hewen, because oh. they needed to know. <laughs> when I was reading, after watching the series, I could hear the voices in my head, and I could see mm -hmm. the pictures. And I wonder if that's messed with your writing process at all. Uh, really not. Um, I've never had any problem considering movies and books as a separate thing, because I've often seen movies made based on books. Frequently, they're nothing like the book, which doesn't bother me. It's just, you know, a separate thing. You know, I've read all of the James Bond books, which is quite a different experience from watching, you know, Sean Connery or Daniel Craig, who's my favorite Bond. Um, but <laughs> I just like fair men. But uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, seeing them on screen is a completely different experience, though equally enjoyable. The question here about, are you ever going to write a novella about Frank so we can know what happened to him in, the, in his life while Claire was away? In <laughs> the friends of Frank are here. Yes. <laughs> yes, no, I like Frank. He's a tragic figure, believe me. Yes, and uh, you have absolutely no evidence that he was actually unfaithful to Claire. <laughs> oh. You all think so, but he wasn't. And, um, probably. And, Frank, uh, vindicated. <laughs> But in the fullness of time, I think there will be a book, I can't say how long, uh, entitled What Frank Knew. Huh. <laughs> so what kind of purpose do these novellas and other books serve for you? Is it a way for you to, I don't know, take a breather, stretch, develop characters? Uh, it was sort of an accident when I started doing it, but uh, but I find it's it's kind of fun. Uh, what they do is they explore little pathways that are left open in the main books. There's these I call them bulges because uh, you know it's like a snake that's eaten all these things, and uh, all these little bulges are sticking out of the sides of the main story, and you know you can explore that loop of the intestine or not, as you feel like. You know, it, it, it lets me expand some of the minor fascinating characters. You know, like what about Joan? When we last saw her in the main book, she was ready to go to France and become a nun. 
Okay, and I was saying, you don't really strike me as non-material, but you know, why is it that you want to go to France and become a nun? And that's when I realized what, what her problem was. I said, okay, that's really interesting. Well, let's see, and on the other side, we have someone else all set to depart for France, and that's Michael Murray, who has recently lost his wife and his father. You know, he's obviously, you know, bereft and mourning and so forth, and you know, what would get him out of this better than having a, a completely naive young Highland girl to look after and see her safely to her convent? So what could happen to those two on the way? <laughs> oh, this is quite sweet. When will the series be done? I'm 77 years old and I want to read to the end. <laughs> Take your vitamins. <laughs> well, does that happen to you or people say, do you know when they meet you, do they say, really great to meet you at this author event, but shouldn't you be home writing, please? Uh -huh. Yes, they do all the time. Um, <laughs> to which the answer is, you got a choice. You can have the next book sooner or you can look at me. <laughs> do you ever get tired of the characters? Do you ever get bored with it? I mean, you... Oh, no. No, I, I might if they were the same characters all along, but they're not. As I said, I wanted to tell what it is that makes people stay married for 50 years. And it's not remaining like you were when you were 20, I'll tell you that. You, you need to change quite a lot in the course of a successful marriage, and so does your partner. So uh, we're, we're exploring that. With each book, these are, are new and different people. Their essence remains the same, and of course they have this, this history that you need to take into account. You know, Jamie continues to have the odd nightmare periodically from his experiences at Wentworth, even though, you know, he is capable of, of lead, leading a full life, you know, and, and of having a, a, a fully realized marriage with Claire and so forth. But there's still these echoes, and sometimes they matter, sometimes they don't, but they're there. But when I begin a new book, and I'm right now in the early phases of book nine, a, a large part of it is just living with these characters and uh, saying, who are you now? You know, you know, what's happened since the last time we were together? Because uh, Written in My Own Heart's Blood followed on directly from the end of Echo and the Bone. But, you know, the way My Own Heart's Blood ends, uh, well, a lot of people are under the delusion that it is the end. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they're right to say, we're so sad the, the books are over, and I keep saying, why do you think that? Did I say that? No. And they did this after book six, you know, Breath of Snow and Ashes. I got the same thing. Oh, we're so sad it's all over. You know, you tied everything up so neatly. It must be the end. And I said, see if I do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Let there be no doubt. Until we meet them again, please do join me in thanking the fantastic Diana Gabaldon. Thank you very much. <laughs> Diana Gabaldon, author of the Outlander series. Written in My Own Heart's Blood is the eighth and latest in the series, and our conversation was recorded live at the Music Hall in Portsmouth for Writers on a New England Stage, a co-production of New Hampshire Public Radio and the Music Hall in Portsmouth in collaboration with River Run Books. The executive producer and live stage presentation director is Patricia Lynch. NHPR president is Betsy Gardella. Producer and communications director is Margaret Talcott. The live sound and recording and mixing engineers, Jason Martin and Ian Martin. Bob Lord and Dreadnought provide live music. Broadcast producer for NHPR is Taylor Quimby. Digital producer is Sarah Plord. Music hall production manager is Jana Morris. Photos from the event are posted online at Clear Eye Photo. And you can see more photos and listen to more author interviews from the series at wordofmouthradio.org. Just click on the Writers on a New England Stage link. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this has been a special broadcast of Word of Mouth from New Hampshire Public Radio. Thank you.